0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. As mentioned, I'm Dan Pfeiffer, co-host of Pod Save America, and a thank you, and a long-time Obama administration colleague with our guest tonight, Ambassador Susan Rice. Under President Obama, Susan served as both. National Secure Advisor, and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. In Bill Clinton's administration, she's Assistant Secretary of State. she is one of the most influential foreign policy voices of our time. She's dedicated her career to public service and is now a Distinguished Visiting Research Fellow at American University, a Senior Fellow at Harvard University, as well as a Contributing Opinion Writer at the New York Times. We're here tonight to discuss her amazing new book, Tough Love, The Story of Things Worth Fighting For, In that book, Ambassador Rice reflects upon her career at the front lines of American diplomacy and foreign policy. We're very excited to have her join us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Ambassador Susan Rice. Good to see you. It's
0: great to be with you.
1: I'm glad we can have this reunion and have all these people join us. Great to be back in San
0: Francisco. Uh, Thanks to the Commonwealth Club, to the Marine Memorial. It's really great. Thanks so much, Dan.
1: Well, I want to start with your book. You and I have been, we've known each other for over a decade. We have traveled the world together. We have sat across the table in hundreds of meetings that were either too early in the morning or too late in the evening. And I have to say, in reading your book, I learned a whole lot about you that I did not know. (laughs) And, like, your book is deeply personal. And I want to ask you about the decision to be so personal in your book, particularly for someone like yourself, who has often unfairly been the target of scrutiny.
0: Well, there were many reasons why I wanted to write the book in the first place. I mean, I've been very lucky to have served uh, our country under two presidents and you know, spoken on behalf of the United States, represented us to the world, and, and tried to keep us safe. But who I am and where I come from is really fundamental uh, to what enabled me to do that. Uh, I came from immigrants from Jamaica on one side of my family who made it to Portland, Maine in 1912, uh, and I come from the descendants of slaves in South Carolina, on the other hand. And it's relatively unusual for somebody like me to have had the experiences and opportunities that I've had. And so I wanted to share what I've learned, frankly, from my family, from my upbringing, from my service in government. And I wanted to be able to provide some value to anybody who wants to compete and thrive in unforgiving environments, and if they've been knocked down, as I have a couple of times, uh, to be able to get back up. So I wanted to do that, but in order to do that, I felt like, you know, I had to be very honest. I had to be personal. I couldn't uh, share who I was and what I'd learned without digging deeply. And so, you know, there's pretty raw stories in there about... For example, my parents divorced when I was a, a young child and how that affected me. Um, pretty personal stuff about my kids and th- some of their health issues and the challenges that I endured You know, trying to be a mom. I'm at one time, a senior official and the daughter of uh, ailing and ultimately dying parents. So there is a lot that's in there that's personal, but I didn't feel that I could um, effectively dismiss those who have characterized me or you know mischaracterized me on the right and the left without uh being faithful to who I am and what my actual story is and that required being a bit more personal than um I think some people might expect at first blush.
1: Did you have you found that now that the book is out it's being discussed in events like this, have you found that uncomfortable? Has it been and unburdening like It's like if somebody's written a book, it's one thing to write the words on paper. It's another thing for people to read them. Well,
0: (laughs) what I found in gearing up for the book tour is that for me, it was much easier to do the introspection and the solitary work of writing, and I actually love the craft of writing. So that part wasn't really hard, but then I realized, oh my God, i got to go talk about this. (laughs) It wasn't so much that I was worried about people reading it. I was worried about, you know, am I going to lose it when I have to get in front of an audience? And I found as I was gearing up that, you know, I was surprising myself by getting choked up about, you know, particularly about my parents. Um, So, yeah. I mean, now that I've been doing it for a couple weeks, it's getting a little easier. But it's, um, it's a different thing to... Bear your soul in front of people who you can look in the eye uh, than it is to you know, type on a computer.
1: Well, it's a very powerful story. Thank you. I'm glad you shared it. Um, when Trump was first elected, the. I mean, that's not even. A, like, that's just a fact. That's a thing that happened. <laughs> a lot. When Trump was first well, actually, elected. Well, okay. I mean, we, won't, we won't. Well, go. we. I mean, we can do. <laughs> The term elected may be doing a lot of work in that sentence. It but is doing yes. a lot of work, but okay. When Trump assumed the presidency, under right. whatever circumstances you choose to ascribe to that, people who I knew in my life would sort of ask me about how much trouble we were in as a country. And the thing I didn't always share with them, because I don't want to make them even more worried, was the more you knew about how government worked, how White Houses work, how presidents make decisions, the more scared you are. Now, you knew a lot more than I did for a lot longer time than I did. How worried are you about sort of the state of the country where we are right now?
0: Well, I don't want to bum people out. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so I'm quite worried about where we are with respect to our national security decision-making or lack thereof, how we are dealing with our allies and partners who we have sort of daily keep throwing under the bus, I'm worried about how difficult it will be for us to, to recover our international standing. And I think unless we bring about resounding change in 2020, it's going to be very difficult uh, to recover at all. But I'm also in some bizarre way an optimist, because on some level you can't really do the work that I've done in learned all that I've learned in the process in terms of, you know, stuff we can't talk about and not be an optimist, because you'd basically lose your mind. Um, Having said that, I do write, particularly the last chapter in the book, uh, called Bridging the Divide. I write about our domestic political divisions and how I believe that they actually constitute our greatest national security vulnerability, And I talk about the political divisions in my family, which are not a joke either. Um, I have a very conservative son, and I've got a progressive daughter, and my husband and I are, you know, trying to keep the food from flying at the dinner table. But in this discussion of our political divisions, um, I do say that because they are fundamentally a problem of our own making, they're a problem that we have the capacity to resolve. And I also take a long view and a, and a historical perspective of you know all of the challenges we have been through that have divided this country in the past from the civil war to reconstruction to the you know two world wars and the civil rights movement and vietnam and all this stuff which we have despite the the violence sometimes and the you know the the deep divisions in the moment we've come through them and so i actually i, I worry about the repair work we have to do with respect to our national security decision-making process. And I worry that in the meantime, you know, the president could do something that even crazier than he's done in the last week, which I have to say exceeded my expectations. Uh, But I think the the fundamental work of, of repairing ourselves is something we have the capacity to do if we have the will and we have a sense of urgency.
1: Were you referring specifically to the decision around Turkey, ISIS? Yeah.
0: Oh my God. Can, maybe, like, there's
1: we are like even by the standards of the Trump era, the last ten days have been a avalanche of news. Like, so I think people sort of may have under they understand that Trump did something that most people disagree with as it relates to Turkey and ISIS and the Kurds. Could you, Could you help explain what the foreign policy consequences of his, of his
0: decision was there? Yeah. <laughs> so the the notion that the president of the United States would essentially hand over five years of counterterrorism gains against ISIS uh, to the very people we defeated ISIS in the first instance by uh, relinquishing territory, um, taking the pressure off of ISIS, which the Kurds had so effectively provided with us and on our behalf and leaving vulnerable to escape these more than 10,000 prisoners that are real hardcore terrorists that we have with the Kurds kept in detention that are now bleeding out. Um, We have basically given, Trump has given 10,000 terrorists what could amount to a get-out-of-jail-free card. Not good. Can you imagine? We know we always say this, but like it's not even – can you imagine if Obama did that? <laughs> I mean, come on, I mean, man. Do you remember how much
1: <laughs> – I mean, just so – I think the...
0: Wait a minute. That's the first scary implication. Yeah. The second is we've given a signal to all of our allies and partners around the world that we, you might wake up tomorrow morning and we're done with you. We've washed our hands of you. That's what we did with the Kurds. And if you're Israel or if you're uh, Poland or if you're South Korea or Japan, you know, on a front line with hostile uh, opponents and you rely on the United States to a substantial extent to be there for you, you're fouling your pants at this point. That's the polite term. (laughs) That's that's I'm a trying to, I'll it's try a foreign policy term of art. Yes, <laughs> because it's the Commonwealth. Class, yeah, that's right. right? Yes, get, I'll be proper.
1: When you said, "Can you imagine if Obama had done this?" It does remind me that remember the entire Republican Party revolting over Obama in a trading, basically doing a prisoner exchange with the Taliban to get
0: five prisoners,
1: five prisoners, and they were would, in
0: custody; they never left custody. Yes.
1: And then everyone's very mad at Obama, and then Trump actually invited those five prisoners to come to Camp David on the anniversary of 9-11. Some of the same people. Yes, the exact same people. This is probably not constructive, but it does make you feel better. <laughs>
0: no, but people need – we need some perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And
0: then that, of course, leads you to the unfathomable hypocrisy of the Republicans in Congress, which is yeah. – Which when we talk about how hard it's going to be to repair our standing in the world, they deserve as much of the blame for this as Trump does, if not more in my estimation. Because the (laughs) it would be one thing if we could say to the world, you know, in December, November 2020, you know, that was a really bad thing. It was an aberration. Sorry, never mind. You know, forgive us. But the institutions that we all expected to be our guardrails fell apart. And that's principally the Republicans in Congress.
1: When you – when President Obama was elected and you, and you went to the UN, like one of our – your first jobs and the first jobs of President Obama was to repair the America's standing in the world post-Bush because of what had happened with the Iraq War. Like I always tell the story that when my wife went to Ireland – during the Iraq war, they told her to tell people she was Canadian. Right. Like, I mean that, which is like, that shows how, how much American standing in the world had fallen and how quickly in most of the world, Obama was get it, was able to get it back up and beyond where it had been before. How much harder do you think it's going to be this time? This is now two president, two of the this last is, three presidents.
0: It's, it's, you know, like tiddlywinks versus, you know, uh,
1: something something complicated. really
0: really really complicated like seven dimensional chess okay <laughs> the you know i was lucky to serve as obama's first ambassador to the united nations and i benefited enormously from the fact that you weren't john bolton right exactly <laughs> i benefited enormously from the fact that he you know the memory of bolton was but a year old yeah and, you know, Barack Obama was viewed as, you know, this extraordinary expression of America's capacity to renew and change itself. And we actually wanted to work at the United Nations and wanted to, to build coalitions to do what we want to do. So it was a really exciting time, uh, to be on the front lines of that work of reestablishing our relationship with the rest of the world. But it, it, it really wasn't that hard because at the end of the day, even though we'd had, you know, freedom fries and all that stuff. Uh, and the chocolate eaters, do you remember that? The chocolate eaters? You know, the, you know, the, the countries that
1: oh, Rumsfeld and in the them dem- yeah.
0: denigrated as chocolate yeah. eaters. Yeah, uh, yeah Belgium, we c- France. We
1: canceled the Dix- Dixie Chicks, that happened too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but at the end of the day, we hadn't ruptured our alliances. We hadn't lifted up dictators. We hadn't lied every day from the Oval Office. So we, the, the repair work that is going to need to be done is uh, many orders of magnitude more complicated um, and difficult.
1: Another, as I, not to dwell on the darkness here, but yeah, a, I, it's, sort of, up, it's sort of where we are. <laughs> but the I think another challenge that our next president, Democratic president, will have is... There has been a exodus of the career foreign policy and national security professionals who run our who help run the government, regardless of who's president. Right. We've seen a hollowing out of the State Department um, similar in the intelligence community, and the military. Do you think that that is at least over time reversible? Can we make people want to get back into government again?
0: I think we can again if we're talking about, you know, the next 18 months. I think if we are talking about longer than that, the the hemorrhaging will be um, so substantial that we'll face really a generational deficit of talent. But as bad as this, you know, denigration of our career um, civil servants and Foreign Service officers has been, and indeed some in the uniformed military, I just want to pause for a minute and say, you know, thank God for these people who are now coming up and bravely sharing what they experienced. And my expectation, because I know many of these people and I know their culture and I know their commitment uh, to their country, is that we're going to have more of this. People it's, people want to tell the truth. People want to do the right thing, even when you know it's been so difficult. And you know what? When Donald Trump I'm looking for the polite word. Uh, oh, I won't be that polite. When he craps on people, <laughs> that's constantly. PG-13. Uh, you know, in, in the agencies and, you know, individually and collectively, those chickens are going to come home to roost. And I think they're starting to now. Yeah. Been so all moves. hail our career. Yeah civil servants, and
1: foreign servants. Let's do something lighter now. Please. You you have a chapter in your book called The Fourth Quarter, which is about the last two-year period of the Obama administration, um, which really was a tremendous period of accomplishment in foreign policy. How do you think, particularly, how do you think that legacy will be remembered over time? And is there one particular accomplishment among those at the end of the administration that you think was either either most meaningful to you or perhaps the most important or durable for the country?
0: Well, I think the things that we were able to get done in that window um, included the Iran deal, the Paris Climate Agreement, um, the opening to and normalization uh, with Cuba, putting... ISIS on the path to defeat, um, and uh, you know, reestablishing our presence and our our economic uh, in, importance in the Asia Pacific. There were a whole bunch of things that that got done in that uh, in that last part of the administration, and even though we look back and say, well, okay, well, he pulled out of the Iran deal, or you know, we've threatened to withdraw from. The Paris Climate Agreement, which actually can't happen, as some people know, until after the next election. So that's not altogether a done deal. These were major uh, wins for US interests and for the broader global interest. And they show what we can accomplish with strong and tenacious US leadership. And I think the message is you can get a lot done when the United States is leading and bringing countries with us that's positive, and you can do a whole hell of a lot of damage when the United States is the wrecking ball in chief. Um, and so that's both, you know, encouraging and discouraging. But what it does mean is that, you know, with new leadership, we have the wherewithal to build on uh, some of these important uh, accomplishments of the latter part of the Obama administration. Um, some will be harder to Uh, repair than others. I think the Iran deal is going to be very, very difficult to retrieve, if not impossible. I think Paris is not going to be that hard. I don't think Cuba will be that hard. Um, And now ISIS has been totally undone. But uh, I do believe that there's there's a good message in there that with strong, principled American leadership that can bring countries along with us we can get a lot done. And so I think a new president can do the same. There has
1: been, I mean, it's, we have a unique situation happening here in America, but all across the world, we're seeing sort of retrenchment among Western democracies and they're, they're being less willing to engage, you know, there's sort of a rise of isolationism, I guess I would say it. Do you think that is a temporary affliction? Um, And if we were to, let's just, be positive again in a world in which we have a new democratic president in eighteen months. How we go about um, sort of reestablishing the multilateralism that was so important to those wins in the fourth quarter?
0: I think isolationism, isolationism is a moment. I don't think it's. I don't think it's sustainable because it runs completely counter to the way the world is wired now. You know, we don't get to undo technology, we don't get to undo the fact that, you know, all of our communications, all of our payment systems, all of our uh, uh, supply chains are global. And, you know, we can talk about building walls and we can put up, you know, see-through slabs here and there, (laughs) but at the end of the day, we can't unring that bell of, of very tight integration with the rest of the world. And so uh, I think we will move through this phase, um, and I think very you know, principled and effective U.S. leadership can accelerate our move through this phase where we get back to a recognition that, you know, like it or not, we have to work with other peoples in other countries. Our security depends on it. Our prosperity depends on it. And there may be new mechanisms and new institutions that we have to devise to do that that are suited to uh, the moment. But, you know, just hiding under a rock and pretending that uh, we can go it alone is, is not going to be tenable, I don't see. And do you, do you
1: think it is possible to convince the American people about the benefits of global trade? Yes. You know, like there's a debate happening right now, and <laughs> on that stage, there are 12 candidates, which is sort of a Jenga puzzle with podiums, but virtually, almost all of them. Everybody is not
0: watching it either. I know. it's the. I don't know uh, what to make of that.
1: <laughs> well, they don't, the, the, yeah, I think you should take it as a compliment. <laughs> the, and almost everyone on that stage, kind of even and sort of including our own vice president, is very skeptical of. The Trans-Pacific Partnership and trade there, and is that is there is there another way to frame the conversation, or um, or sort of or or frame the conversation, or explain the benefits of trade in a way that could you know maybe it's a different iteration or formulation, but another way to make to to line up our politics, which is with where the the global economy is going.
0: Well. Um, The politics of both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, which has arguably become more protectionist even than the Democrats, is missing American public opinion. The best uh, recurrent survey of U.S. public opinion on matters related to foreign policy, national security, and international economics is the Chicago Council uh, on Global Affairs survey that comes out roughly this time of year, annually – and what it's been showing is that the American people's appreciation for free and open trading system is radically increasing over recent years as the politics have gone in a different direction. Americans understand that our alliances matter. They understand that global trade is important. That doesn't mean that you know they like every uh, element of, of every trade deal, but they don't really understand it at that level. Broadly speaking, they get that we have to be an exporting nation, we have to be a trading nation, and we don't get to, as I said in the previous comment, hide under a rock. So, what I frankly think we need are leaders in both parties who are prepared to stand up for what they know is right, like you know, our vice president and you know, our nominee in twenty sixteen, uh, who all know that you know it may be good politics in Michigan to say you oppose the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement or whatever the, the next trade deal is. But it is not rational policymaking that serves our interests. And I'd like to see more of us, you know, have the, the fortitude to, to call it straight because they know better.
1: Interesting. If it's okay, I'd like to talk a little bit about Benghazi, your favorite topic. Um,
0: in... It's a whole chapter <laughs> out of 23.
1: You know, when I think about Benghazi now, sitting where we are today in American history, it really sort of was the conspiracy in the coal mine for what was to come in American politics. Because it was, to me, the first time that a conspiracy theory, devoid of any facts, like exploded on the far right dark corners of the internet, and then. Before too long, became the official policy of the Republican Party, right? And you found yourself at the center of that, simply because you were the, you unfortunately were, were on Sunday television the, the weekend after Benghazi. So I wanted to know, like you talk about a lot in the book. It's it's obviously been, um, you know, a subject of great interest to you. Um, yeah. oh, that's, of that's interest, a, yeah, of something, of something <laughs> to you. Have you, do you think about it differently? Like, how, like how, do you, how have you reflected on that experience of being in the middle of that crap show? I'm trying to keep my words right. <laughs> um, knowing, like, what was to come in American politics?
0: Well, I think it was, it was a pivot point and maybe a harbinger of how dishonest and destructive our, our political battles could become. But I was reminded, but just to put again something in historical perspective, I was reminded by a classmate of mine uh, from high school who was Vince Foster's niece. You know, that was the, maybe arguably, the original theory. crazy conspiracy theory back in the Clinton era. And so it all, in the moment, it all feels like, oh my God, this is, you know, horrible and it can't get worse. Well, it's gotten so much worse. Benghazi seven year, seven years ago feels like a lifetime. And when you look at uh, the dishonest uh, politics of personal and collective destruction that, that we've seen today, and the classic example is Trump's effort to try to portray Joe Biden, of all people, as corrupt. You know, if that's not the pot calling the kettle black, I don't know what is. And it's also a a myth made out of whole cloth. And yet, you know, that's how we play politics now. So at least, you know, in 2012, there was a legitimate crisis, we lost four Americans in a horrific terrorist attack, and that was a real tragedy to reckon with, and my part of it was what I was um, told to say on five Sunday shows based on what was our current best understanding of what had happened, and 10 days later uh, and beyond, we got new information that made what I had shared inaccurate in at least one important respect. And that resulted in me being branded in perpetuity a liar, uh, you know, uh, incompetent, untrustworthy. Um, And, of course, you know, my incompetence was uh, the extent to which I agreed to, to be the face that went out on those shows and do so in the, in the hothouse of a, a crisis, uh, I, took, uh, I took one for the team. And I didn't expect in, in making that, uh, agreeing to go on that that would be the case, but I, I probably should have in retrospect. And that's one of the things I write about in the book, You know what I learned from this experience, um, both about um, myself, um, where I made mistakes, I didn't listen to my mother, Who, no, seriously, she warned me on that Friday night before I went on Sunday don't go on the shows. She had just had uh, a stroke following her fourth or fifth cancer surgery, and I had stopped by her house on the way home from work just to spend some time with her and see how things were going. And she said, So, what are you doing this weekend? And I said, Well, I'm taking the kids on Saturday to the Ohio State football game, they're gonna play Berkeley. And, of course, I want to see Berkeley defeated, (laughs) being being a good Stanford person. (laughs) So that was my plan for the weekend. And then I said, but I've also just been asked to go on the Sunday shows, so I'll, I'll do that as well. And she's like, why? Why are you being asked to go on the Sunday shows? And she went through this whole thing about don't do it. I smell a rat. And I was like, Mom, don't be ridiculous. I've done this before. You know, I... It's not what I wanted to do, but I agreed to do it. It'll be fine. And, of course, it wasn't. So lesson number one is always listen to your mother. (laughs) And (laughs) lesson number two, which I also write about in the book, is when crazy is happening to somebody in your family or close to you, turn off the television, My mom could not bring herself to turn off the television, so she was tortured by uh, what was happening to me. And worse, my nine-year-old daughter, who we weren't even conscious about, you know, overhearing what was coming through on the television, um, ended up uh, having a, a series of pretty scary hallucinations that we couldn't explain, and... Out of the blue, sort of, you know, six weeks into all of this, she was saying that she was seeing images of men coming at her out of walls. And we were terrified. So we took her to Children's Hospital in Washington. And for two weeks, they were trying to test her to see, is this possibly a brain tumor? Is it schizophrenia or some other kind of psychosis? Is it a vision problem? And they went through all of these things and, and one by one ruled out the worst-case um, explanations and concluded ultimately that it was a stress reaction to what was happening to me. And after a period of almost a year, it went away. She's, good news is she's happy, healthy, thriving, uh, almost 17-year-old now. But, you know, in the ether... For old people, young people, anybody who cares about a person who 's um, come under this kind of attack, and frankly, on you know any side of the political spectrum, um, one of the reason I write about this very personally is because I want people to understand that the politics of personal destruction don 't come for free. real people who didn 't sign up for this uh, as I did get um, Get hurt along the way. So there's more in there about Benghazi. There's more in there about what I learned. I learned a bit about Fox News. (laughs) I did. No, seriously. Last topic. Last thing on this topic. I had the opportunity to interview at length a former senior Fox News producer, who was the senior guy producing one of these most rabid of the um, Fox shows in this window. And I wanted to get his sense of, you know, why me? You know, how does this work? And I write about this in the Benghazi chapter. He said, you know, the way Fox works, we're very close to our audience. We understand what our audience wants. And we know that the way to keep our audience engaged is to make them mad. Anger equals ratings. And the way to make them mad and keep them angry is to always have a series of villains. And you can't have the same villain all the time, and the villain can't be an institution. It can't be the State Department. It has to be a face uh, and a human being and that we can, you know, utilize repeatedly. And so the fact that I had been on television and five different Sunday shows with all that video... That they could replay and replay and replay means meant that I became a new uh, and from their point of view attractive villain, and to this day, you know they say my name on Fox News, and it 's like you know it 's like a trigger <laughs> people start twitching <laughs> so i 'm now a recyclable villain uh, but that 's really a, it was a fascinating insight into how they engage their audience. They're very conscious of what they're doing. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program.
1: And do you think that the fact that you're an African American woman contributed to why Fox picked you as his villain?
0: Well, my view is that I don't discount that potential. I really don't. Uh, You know, I asked that question very specifically of this um, former senior producer, and he said, "Look, the original Fox villain was Bill Clinton, and then it was Barney Frank." Uh, and so he was giving me a whole list of my predecessors that, <laughs> that, that didn't fit the description of black woman. Uh, but I have to say, particularly now, as we see how Trump is race baiting and and with particular venom going after women of color, particularly black women, that, you know, he knows he's tapping into something. And it's not just the squad, I mean it was me for early in the administration. It was Maxine Waters, I and mean, it was April Ryan. You can go through the whole litany, and now it's the squad and uh, so i think I think there is something to that, but I don't think that's the the principal explanation um, and I think quite frankly that my association with Obama and being viewed as as close to him and therefore. Uh, you know, attractive target in that regard had as much or more to do with it than anything else. When Trump
1: brought you up again in the beginning of the presidency by saying you were accused of unmasking the he Trump officials... Me a,
0: he called me a criminal.
1: A criminal, yes. <laughs> I mean, he barely... Made I was it.
0: early... I feel really kind of proud to be one of the early... <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh. Uh. The early uh, targets of his ire. It's like you know, it's good
1: company. Yeah, it's it's uh, something to be proud of. I
0: got it. Yeah. <laughs> the
1: but you had the you had just left the Obama administration. I assume you were vacationing or planning a vacation or relaxing, and all of a sudden, you were the president of the United States. Brought you right back in the center of the craziness. What was like? How did that? What was your reaction to that? And and was had like. How did that manifest itself in your life? Did you start hearing from lots of people? Was it did you feel
0: threatened? I didn't I didn't feel physically At th- first of all I was shocked, let me just be honest. Because I thought as much as I've been, you know, this recyclable boogeyman, as I call it, I was out. I was past past A. Why would anybody want to bother with me anymore? I really thought that you know, out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> well, <laughs> Uh, I couldn't have been more wrong. And uh, so shock was my first uh, reaction. Uh, then I got angry. And then I you know, began to apply, frankly, some of the lessons that I had learned the hard way through Benghazi, which was to get out quickly, speak for myself, uh, you know, push back forcefully, um, and enlist others to do the same. And so my counterpunch this time was far more effective. In, in the In the administration, my hands were tied. I mean, I I really couldn't, um, I couldn't counterpunch. Uh, I couldn't, you know, call up journalists and say, you know, you know, this is crazy, and here's the facts versus, you know, these completely unsubstantiated allegations. And so, and and because it was so baseless, it you know, it didn't last long. And he moved on to other villains like James Comey, and you know, m- more. Uh, <laughs> Juicy targets. But it was also an early indication of how they roll. You know, they, they have a real interesting playbook. They start by planting false information in the far-right media, like the Chernovich kind of Twitterverse. You know, that's the Pizzagate guy. You know, the really weird out there far-right media. He was the first to tweet. And then... Uh, Then they get, you know, somebody closer to mainstream media to pick it up. And then they get a question planted back when they had press conferences in the (laughs) White House. And then the spokesman has to address it, which gives it a huge amount of oxygen. And then they're off to the races. They have this interesting playbook. Um, And, you know, Trump is continuing and and working to perfect his baseless attacks on, uh, on, on various individuals. And I was just sort of, again... You know, a leading uh, a leading indicator of what was to come. We have a question from the audience. What is one thing that you learned from President Obama? I learned many things from President Obama, but I think uh, what comes to mind first is calm in a crisis. You know, I never saw him, and I'd be interested if you ever did. Certainly not in national security. I never saw him panic. I never saw him yell in anger. Uh, The more intense and stressful things got, the more calm and rational he became, became and demanded, rightly so, the most rigorous analysis of, you know, any issue, what the options were, what the risks and benefits of every course of action were. And temperamentally, that's, you know, what I'm inclined to be myself. You know, when I get really angry, I don't, really angry, I don't yell. My voice gets really low and I talk almost inaudibly. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, when it's really serious, that's when I'm kind of at my best. But he taught me at, you know, at his level uh, to be able to, to summon, you know, all of your faculties when you need them most, and and never to never to lose it when you can't possibly afford to.
1: Another subject which you ta- you write a lot about in the book is about Syria, right? And we touched on in the beginning with President Trump's recent decision, and even in the conversations about Trump's recent decision, there's been like it often leads to criticism of the Obama administration, and so I guess in also, at the same time, there's – I guess maybe I would put Syria in the context of three big decisions you talk about. When you were in the Clinton administration and there, and the, there was genocide in Rwanda, the decision to uh, intervene militarily in Libya, and then Syria. And so thinking of those three very different situations that had different you know, responses but all did not lead to anything resembling an ideal outcome – How do you think about the right – like, what lessons do you take from those experiences about the right way the U.S. can play the proper role in the world?
0: Well, I spend actually a fair bit of time in the book um, writing about my experiences in the Clinton administration um, when I was, for the most part, working on issues related to Africa. When Rwanda occurred and Somalia, which I also write about, um, I was actually not – yet responsible for African issues. I was a junior staffer on the UN, a junior staffer on the NSC working on the UN. And yet what I saw and what I experienced and what I learned from watching more senior policymakers wrestle with Somalia after Black Hawk Down and uh, Rwanda, one, a actual humanitarian intervention, the other, the failure to intervene or decision um, not to decide to intervene. Um, those were hugely formative experiences that shaped my thinking as a policymaker down the road. Fast forward to the Obama administration, where we faced the imminent threat of Gaddafi uh, killing tens of thousands of civilians in, uh, in Libya, and then we later uh, faced the civil war and the huge humanitarian crisis in Syria. And we made different decisions in each instance. Um, And in Libya, my view in retrospect is that it was right to intervene. Um, We did so economically through the use of air power. We didn't have to put troops on the ground. We actually did save the civilians we were trying to save. But it was the aftermath that we, the United States, and the international community got wrong. And frankly... We got it wrong in part because after Benghazi, there was no appetite anywhere in Washington to deal with Libya for a period of time. Syria was, as I write in the book, the most wrenching, difficult issue I think we ever dealt with in the Obama administration, and there were really three different Syria issues. You know, One was the chemical weapons red line and the question of whether to use force, which I talk about at some length. The other was, should the United States intervene in the civil war against Assad militarily? And the third was going after ISIS, which we did decide to do. Um, And my own judgment painfully arrived at, with respect to the question of, should we intervene in the civil war, was as costly as the decision not to intervene was, that was still the right answer given the totality of our interests uh, at stake. It would have taken a massive ground war by the United States before the Russians intervened, because once they intervened, it was not really feasible uh, to try to topple Assad. And it would have been on the scale of what we had to do in Iraq, uh, or I shouldn't say what we had to do, what we chose to do in Iraq uh, after 2003. So I... I don't mince my words about how wrenching that choice was and is, but I still think it was the right one. On the chemical weapons uh, question, I write in the book how I was the one person at the principal's table uh, when the president twice asked uh, his cabinet-level advisors for their views when he was making clear that he wanted to get congressional authorization before Taking military action. I dissented. I said, I think we need to go ahead and do it. Uh, and I was the only one. And interestingly, I think I was right because, right on the politics. My principal reason for opposing his decision to go to Congress was that I didn't think Congress was going to give him the authority. I'd kind of learned, Dan, perhaps subconsciously through the Benghazi experience that whatever President Obama was trying to get out of Congress, and this required Republican support, whether they believed it was right or not, they weren't going to give it to him. And the Democrats in this instance were not eager to sign up for another War in the Middle East, or what could turn into a war in the Middle East. So we didn't have the Democrats, we weren't going to get the Republicans, and I didn't believe we were going to get congressional authorization. I turned out to be right about the politics. But I also acknowledged I think I was actually wrong about the policy, because Obama went on to negotiate the declaration of all of Syria's chemical weapons and the removal and destruction of 1,300 metric tons that are gone. We thought we got it all. Either we didn't or they made new stuff. And so then Trump came in in 17 and 18 and took Obama's uh, target list off the shelf, quite literally, same list, bombed those targets and then walked away 24 hours later and said, see, I did what Obama wouldn't do, but nothing has changed on the ground. Whatever chemical weapons were there are still there. And he did the same thing again in 18. And I actually supported those actions. But what it shows you is you know, it may make you feel good to bomb for 24 hours, 48 hours. But if it doesn't yield improvement on the ground in terms of getting the chemical weapons out or using the leverage of the use of force to, to force a diplomatic solution, you haven't accomplished anything. So the bottom line is these are really very tough issues. It's very hard to get them right. And what I've learned about humanitarian intervention is every situation is different. There's no right answer that applies across the board. As Obama said, you know, just because we can't intervene everywhere doesn't mean we shouldn't intervene anywhere. And I think that's right. I think we have to take it on a case-by-case basis and weigh the risks against the benefits of our involvement.
1: Do you think there's anything that could be done now that would improve the situation in Syria?
0: Now, like, after Trump just did what he did?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, or before that. But just – like, no, like if, if you take the position that there were very limited things that could be done to avoid the situation we are currently in, is there anything that could – is there a way to, to broker peace? Is like, what, like, let's say you were in the White House right now. We can even take Trump's decision off the table. Like, what, like what would be a strategy that could help improve the situation in any way, shape, or form?
0: Now that – Trump has allowed the Turks to come in, slaughter the Kurds, and withdraw our forces um, under fire now. This is like, you know, Saigon. Uh, I don't know what we can possibly do. But before that, so let's rewind the tape two weeks ago. like Six days, yeah. I'm being generous. (laughs) Two weeks ago... um, We were still in a situation where, with the Kurds and our coalition forces, we were controlling a large chunk of Syrian territory. And we had our uh, boot on ISIS's neck. And the Syrian government and their Russian and Iranian backers were eager to take that territory back because that's where a lot of the oil resources are. And Assad can't claim victory and, you know, uh, sovereignty over his territory without that. So that was some leverage. That was leverage that we could potentially bring to bear if we could get back to the negotiating table and be discussing Assad's future. The other leverage we had was, you know, that we and our Arab partners and the Europeans had, if we wanted to use it, resources to help rebuild Syria. Syria is destroyed. You think the Russians and the Iranians are going to help Assad rebuild it? No. Should we is one question, but could we with our partners if we wanted to? The answer is yes, and that was some leverage, both of which have now been lost, and neither of which two weeks ago were as impactful as, you know, what we might have had at at our disposal years ago. But um, now we've just basically – you know, folded like a cheap tent and walked away. Can you fathom a reason why
1: Trump made this decision? Because there were, like, like, Republicans disagree with him, Democrats disagree with him. I have yet to hear someone explain what the, what, like, why, like, what was the underlying rationale for this decision?
0: Well, the the most benign explanation I can come up with is, you know, I alone can fix it that mentality that I know best, you know, my gut tells me better than any, you know, number of other people's brains. And just he was sick and tired and decided to throw in the towel and didn't really give a damn about the consequences. That's the most benign explanation. A less benign explanation that we have to now consider in wake of what we've just learned about how he's dealt with Ukraine and how he's invited China to interfere in our elections Is it something happened on that phone call or maybe in some side discussion that we don't know about that caused Trump to give Turkey a huge gift? He's so transactional. He doesn't do this stuff for free. So what did he get? You got to ask yourself, was it political? Was it financial? You know it was personal because it didn't in any way, shape, or form advance the national interest. So you also have to consider the less benign explanation, which is that he did a deal for himself of some sort that we will have to discover subsequently.
1: Another question from the audience here. You decided not to challenge Susan Collins next year in Maine. What, what informs your decision? That would have been a fun race to
0: work on. I'm just, just saying. Well, did by the way, <laughs> just to, to gloat a little bit, Sarah Gideon, who is the likely Democratic nominee, the Speaker of the uh, of the House in Maine, just outraised Susan Collins by over a million dollars. And Susan Collins's approval ratings around thirty five percent now. So, I am st- strongly supporting Sarah Gideon. I did give it real consideration uh, after I somewhat impulsively suggested that I might want to run. Did you do it by tweet? I did. Well, it was, you know, it was, it was all Jen Psaki's fault. Oh, okay. Jen Psaki is our friend and former colleague. And so I'll tell this. Whole, Go Do I have time to it. tell this yeah, story? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm in the Phoenix airport. And I'm walking the long distance to my gate. And Susan Collins is on the Senate floor giving her interminable speech (laughs) about Brett Kavanaugh. And I'm on the phone with my husband, and I can't hear because I'm walking past these television monitors. I'm like, what is she saying? And he said, well, she's winding up to it, but she's going to vote for him. I'm like, God damn it. So I start cursing. And I say to my husband, I'm going to run against her. And I say that because, you know, we have long family ties in Maine. We have a house in Maine. You know, this is going back 100 years. It's not, you know, as if, you know, I woke up and said I'm running in Wyoming. It was a place where I had some uh, <laughs> roots. And my husband's like, no, you're not. That's crazy. Just, you know, come on. <laughs> so I said, well, yeah. So the conversation moved on. I hung up. I'm standing in the Southwest Airways line. I happen to be the number one person in group one. And I'm on my phone reading all these tweets and comments about what Susan Collins did. And Jen Psaki tweets, who's going to run against Susan Collins? And something happened and my fingers just (laughs) hit two letters, (laughs) M-E. And then I got on the plane, sat down, you know, and my phone started blowing up first it was my husband. (laughs) He's like, what the hell? And then it was my person who helps me with press stuff going, my phone is blowing up. What do I do? What am I going to tell people? And I'm thinking, I'm about to be on a cross-country flight. I can't be silent for five hours and say nothing. So I try to clean it up a little bit, say, well, you know, I'll think about it, and blah, 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 and I'm really mad at Susan Collins, which I was. So anyway, the bottom line is because I had these twitchy fingers in the Phoenix airport, I really did think about it. And I looked at it in all its dimensions. But most importantly, I really um, spent time talking to my family. And our daughter, the one that was nine and is now almost 17, is a junior in high school. And she's been through her mother being gone for four and a half years in New York uh, when she was young. And then another three and a half years of me being under the same roof, but hardly uh, altogether present when I was national security advisor. And I just didn't feel and my husband didn't feel that this was a time that we could uproot her or, in my case, just leave her to, uh, to pursue this. So the primary reason was very personal that I felt I really owed to my daughter to be. Um, as president as I possibly could be, particularly in these last two years. So I decided to go on book tour instead. <laughs> <laughs> She's not very happy right now.
1: Can you see yourself, does that have to be 18 months from now, but at some point getting back into government service?
0: Yeah, I, I, potentially. Um, and I could see running for office, potentially, down the road. Um, I don't know what office. Um, I do call my home the District of Columbia, where I was born and raised. And um, last I checked, they had no voting representation in Congress. And I don't think that's imminent. Well, the So I could be mayor Senate. of the District of Columbia. Yeah. I could, you know, do something else. Uh, at a higher level. And so that's something I would consider. I'd also consider coming back, you know, into the executive branch in an appointed capacity. But I've kind of done a lot of different jobs. I've been in the cabinet as UN ambassador. I've been national security advisor. So there's not a lot left beside, you know, a couple jobs. <laughs> and uh, it has to... Did
1: you just start your vice presidential nominee speculation?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Those weren't the couple jobs I was talking about, but since you mentioned, no. Uh, And, you know, it has to be for the right president, because you and I have been so spoiled. I know. I mean, I'm sorry, but the privilege of serving your country is extraordinary. The privilege of serving your country with a president that you have enormous respect and trust in and confidence in on every dimension is one that I don't think we can reasonably hope to replicate. No. So that's another challenge.
1: What advice would you give to young people who are thinking about a career not just in public service but in foreign policy, national security?
0: Believe it or not, I am a huge proponent of people getting into public service and particularly, you know, military service, the foreign service, our intelligence agencies. First of all, it's extraordinarily rewarding work. You're working on the toughest issues with really smart people. um, And, you know, you know that every day when you wake up, what you're doing really matters. That's huge. Um, And you actually can have a, a fundamental impact on uh on issues that, that you care about. And so I loved it and I wouldn't trade it and for all the you know track marks and knives I have in my back and <laughs> just calmly pull them out and carry on. So I'm a big proponent of it. And I when when I go talk on college campuses or elsewhere, I really Encourage people to to get involved and give it a shot. And frankly, it's more important now than ever for the reason we discussed earlier, which is, you know, that we risk this generational damage to our experience and intellectual capital in our agencies as the workforce is aging in the first place. And then Trump is, you know, doing his utmost uh, to uh, deconstruct the administrative state or whatever he and Banning called it. So um, I think it's rewarding work, it's important work, uh, and I really encourage people to do it. Join the deep state, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> we should get t-shirts that say, join the deep state. I just can't believe you took
1: time off your other job of running the deep state to come here and talk to us tonight. <laughs> well, That's going to end up on Fox. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you have no idea what I'm doing from my uh, basement in, in Washington, D.C. <laughs>
1: Last question for you. Your book is about so much your life, about what happened in the Obama administration, the importance of government work, et cetera. But it's really about resilience to me and being able to get up and you get knocked down and how you've done that throughout your entire life as a child, tough professional times, tough personal times, and... You know, as someone who knows you well, um, like, what is your secret to doing that? Like, how do you constantly get back up, right? Like, going, for, going through Benghazi, not, you know, having to withdraw from consideration of Secretary of State, getting up, going to work the next, day, and eventually becoming a National Security Advisor?
0: Well, I think the, I'll give you two answers to that question. The experiential answer is that, you know, my first big blow as I alluded to earlier, came when I was a kid, when my parents went through a really ugly, really painful divorce that was violent, that was extremely destructive, and I was in the middle of it with my little brother, um, trying to literally separate them, mediate, um, and uh, put out their fires and from basically the age of 7 through 15 i was in the cauldron of their fighting their separation and their custody battle and it was one it was a formative period where you know you're forming friendships and you you're trying to establish yourself academically and socially and you know i was Suffering in my friendships with my classmates because I was angry and I was not nice, and several of them uh, took me aside and, and and shared, you know, tough love. You you, you got to get your act together. Don't bring that here. And inside the household, um, you know, it, it was ugly and scary, but I couldn't control that. I mean, I tried. But I couldn't. And what I realized was I needed to focus on what I could control. I could control how I applied myself in school. I could control you know, whether I participated in sports or other extracurricular activities. I could control how I treated my friends. And so I decided to focus on what was within my capacity to affect. Uh, and it worked. And I was able to um, grow despite what was happening behind closed doors at home. And I realized through this that I could take a punch and keep going. It was more than a punch. I mean, it was a body blow. um, But I could keep going. And then the other part of the answer that I think is clear to me now as I've reflected on all of this, and this is part of the process of of writing the book, um, you know, in my family, which came from modest backgrounds and fought through barriers of race and of, you know, xenophobia and everything to, to excel, um, you know, there are two choices if you get knocked down. You either stay down or you get back up. And it staying down never felt like a viable option. I... Um, I knew that you know whether as a child or as an adult, uh, when my integrity was publicly maligned on you know in it before a national audience, that you know I could shrink from the scene and walk away and you know with my tail between my legs and disappear. But I hadn't done anything wrong, so why would I do that? Or I could keep doing what I was doing and trying my best to to serve as as I knew how and keep going. And so that's how I explain it. I don't really know what the alternative is that makes a lot of sense to the extent that, you know, you can find it in you to get up. Sometimes, I mean, the the, the blows are unsustainable. And, you know, I've been blessed not to have taken one of those. But um, my favorite football player as a kid... Uh, as a Washington Redskins fan was the running back larry brown i don 't know if any of you all remember him, but he was just this scrappy, hungry, uh, very successful um, redskins running back and he wrote a book um, called i 'll always get up and if he hadn 't used that title, that might have been what I would have used <laughs> for mine but that sort of that 's part of why I loved him so much is because he had that. Determination. no matter how hard he was hit, no matter how many you know, uh, concussions he sustained, he was going to get back up. So that's the best answer I can give that's you. That's a good I mean, answer. I don't, I don't know what else to say.
1: <clears throat> our thanks to Ambassador Susan Rice. A reminder to our audience here that copies of Tough Love are available to buy outside, and Ambassador Rice will be happy to sign books on stage in just a few minutes. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. For the Commonwealth Club, thank you, Susan Rice, for being here. Thank you, much. <laughs>